I mentioned in the workshop this uh, publication which marked the 3350th anniversary of the founding of Harvard uh, University in the United States. The reason I got a copy was uh, that a friend of mine was instrumental in bringing it together. This is in 1986. He's, in fact, our colleague who runs the Labrie near Boston. And uh, on the cover, you won't be able to see it, is the sort of coat of arms of Harvard University. And uh, on the shield is the word Veritas, truth. And so the title of this publication is Veritas Reconsidered. Veritas Reconsidered. On the left here is the word Christo, for Christ, and on the right, et ecclesiae, for the church. Truth, for Christ, and for the church. Now, I, I wouldn't need to, to look at the United States for an example of this point that I'm making, this great irony. Here is a university which was founded there in the 17th century, but we have universities in this country founded many centuries before, and what were they dedicated to? What are their names? I mean, the names of the colleges, as I said yesterday, just think of them. Christ's College, Emmanuel, Jesus, Corpus Christi, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and yet, even though these, these universities dedicated to the training of young men and now women to the, for, the, uh, for the, uh, uh, the work of using the mind, even though these were founded by Christians and for Christ and for the church, we have now in the contemporary Christian church almost the opposite sort of emphasis as we've been speaking about, a tendency to uh, underestimate the significance of the mind. This is very sad. We have a culture, the basis of which was the uh, foundation of the Christian faith, taken wholeheartedly, believed in, uh, lived with conviction and it bore wonderful fruit. It is now in its death throes, but what a tremendous uh, creation it was uh, by those who went before us who believed the same things that we do. But they had an elevation of the mind. And we have something which is very different, and this is incredibly sad. Uh, Hofstadter, an American wrote a book about anti-intellectualism in uh, American life. That was back in 1962. And this is how he describes the formation of Harvard. It is doubtful that any community ever had more faith in the value of learning and intellect than Massachusetts Bay. In its inception, New England was not an agricultural community, nor a manufacturing community, nor a trading community. It was a thinking community, an arena and mart for ideas, its characteristic organ being not the, the hand, nor the heart, nor the pocket, but the brain. Theirs was a social structure with its cornerstone resting on a book, the Word of God. 
Only six years after John Winthrop's arrival in Salem Harbor, the people of Massachusetts took from their own treasury the fund from which to found a university, so that even in the wilderness, their young men could at once enter upon the study of Aristotle and Thucydides, of Horace and Tacitus and the Hebrew Bible. Now, I made the point last night. Imagine us. We've just arrived in uh, Massachusetts Bay. What would we take as a, as a priority? In our sixth year, would we be founding a university? Now, you see, our forefathers were committed to a Christian mind. Christo et ecclesiae, the truth, by which they meant the Bible. On the shield are three Bibles, two open and one face down was also open to indicate both on the one hand that God's word is open to us and we can understand it, it is clear, we simply have to read, of course we have to study it, it is a great book, it is a deep book, it needs much study, but the closed book, not meaning that we cannot understand it, but that we do not understand everything and so we have to have a proper humility so much for this great irony. And as we've already seen advertised, uh, Harry Blay Myers writes with great um, passion about the loss of a Christian mind. Here is another quotation from the same book, as you've already seen. The thesis of this book, he says, is that the chances that the Christian mind will shake the foundations of secularist individualism are not very great at a time when secularism has all but shaken the Christian mind to pieces. All but shaken the Christian mind to pieces. Now, it's not simply secularism that has shaken our Christian mind to pieces. It, it is, as we've been saying, this uh, improper view of spirituality in part. But that is our dilemma. So this is an incredibly important subject that we are considering the development of a Christian mind. How do we do it? Now, I want to say, by way of introduction, very importantly, that this is not, you must not see anything that we have done uh, in the past 24 hours as a sort of promotion of some new kind of intellectualism. As if what we're urging on everyone is that they should be bright, that they should be the new class, uh, the, the elite, the PhDs, etc. So not to be that then makes you feel poor and worthless and, and uh, uh, incapable and so on and, and second-class citizens and so on. This is not what we're about. What we are saying is simply this. God has given all of us these faculties. They are great gifts and we are to use them. And to the degree that we can, we must. And some have different gifts and some can rise to very great heights in this area in terms of what they can study and they've been to university and all the rest, and others cannot. But they must also be using their minds, developing their minds. For all of us are to be trying, seeking to uh, develop a Christian mind, to have a mind that is infused with an understanding of God's truth, veritas, truth, and so being able to apply it to the whole of life. So that's the first thing, not a new fashion of intellectualism, but simply, as, as Jesus says it there in Luke chapter 10, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And so all we're talking about is loving God with the whole of our being, including the mind. Not excluding the mind, but including the mind.
Now, it's a very difficult subject, secondly, to do. And um, I do ask your patience with me. It's a very subtle subject. It's not simple and straightforward. Some bits of it are simple, but others are very complicated, and we will not find easy solutions. Now, I've divided what I'm going to do into two sections. The first is, and I'll deal with it very briefly, a biblical framework. It's so important within our own constituency to keep emphasizing that the reason why we are doing things is not because we think it's a nice idea or it's going to be fashionable or something, but because God's Word commands us to it. Now, what does the Bible say about this? First of all, <clears throat> the Bible indicates quite clearly the necessity of a, quote, Christian mind. The necessity of a Christian mind. It does this in two ways, both implicitly and explicitly. To deal with the explicit, first of all, you have passages like that, statements like Jesus, to love the Lord your God with all your mind. You cannot avoid it. God tells us that we are to use our minds, to be developing. What about Romans 12? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. These are explicit statements that refer to the importance of our mind. And there are many others. Secondly, implicitly, these I find almost even more powerful. This is the principle that I mentioned last night of the warp and woof. You don't just have to have text. We've got enough of those. Joshua 1, verse 8, Colossians 3, verse 16, and so on. Many of them. But the implicit is even more powerful, I find. Think of these. First of all, Paul had such a high view of the mind of man that even when he was talking to non-Christians, he reasoned with them. The common theme in the book of Acts concerning his evangelism, I have about five or six uh, uh, references in the book of Acts, 18 verse 4, verse 19, verse 28, 19 verse 8, 28 verse 23. You can get these off the tape. I'm hurrying. We have much to deal with. And, and so it shows that Paul not only had a high view of his own mind, the necessity, he said, pray for me that I may make the gospel clear. And that was what he was constantly trying to do, is to make it clear even to the mind of a non-Christian. Chapter, two, uh, chapter 1 of Romans. What is it? But the most wonderful explanation in logical development of the reasons why Christianity is to be accepted. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. And then he spells it all out. He makes it clear. He sh tells you why there is judgment, why there has to be salvation, what the salvation is, and so on. But most importantly in that, you notice the point that he makes, that the evidence for the mind of man of the existence of God, and the truth about God, is clear to all men. It's clear. And so his first condemnation is not that they have been sinners in the sense that they've been doing things which are immoral, but that they have been wrong in their thinking, thinking themselves to be wise 
they became fools. They suppressed the truth. These are the expressions that he uses. Thirdly, Paul talks about his own purpose as a Christian, and it should be ours, as I'll argue. He describes the, his own purpose as a Christian to be to bring every thought captive to obey Christ and to destroy every, all arguments and pretensions that lift themselves up against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. The weapons of our warfare are not earthly. They're powerful. What is it? Of course it includes prayer and all the other things, fellowship in the church, the preaching of God's word. But supremely, it is that God has given us his truth. And so he says again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we don't practice underhand techniques and so on, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So there is that purpose, the bringing of every thought captive to obey Christ. We've looked at Jesus' um, uh, uh, statement about the, um, in the commandment about loving God with our mind, but you think of how he dealt with the Pharisees. He challenged them about their foolishness. He says, can't you see how foolish your position is? You say that you should, you should swear uh, by the, by the, by the, uh, uh, by the uh, altar, but not by, by the gold on the altar, but not by the altar. Which is more important? And clearly he, what he's doing there is he's changing. He says, on the other hand, you can see what the weather is going to be. You can understand that. Can't you understand what's happening right now in front of you? All a challenge. But finally, the thing that I find most compelling in this, this is the warp and woof of the whole of the Word of God. It's just this alone. You know that God treats the mind of man seriously by simply the fact that he created a book to be read as the criterion of truth. Why would he have given us a book if the mind of man was not important? And so he tells Joshua to take it around with him and never leave it and to read it. Now, so much, as I said, very briefly, we could dwell on that. What we have, in other words, is in Scripture a very clear directive to develop a Christian mind. Now, secondly, how do we develop a Christian mind? I have four points. We have to have a mind, first of all, which is subject to God's Word. This is not a mind which just goes out and says, oh, I'm going to do a PhD in such and such, or a PhD in another subject. No, no, no. The first mark of a Christian mind is that having been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, having yielded oneself to Him, submitted oneself to Him, to His Lordship, one is saying, Lord, You teach me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the mark of a Christian mind is this. Are we prepared to submit to God's Word? And you see, this is a very important principle. Modern man, back in the 18th century, elevated his own mind over against God. He even said, God doesn't exist. And he has now come to the pitiable position, some of us were speaking about it at lunch, where he is prepared to deny everything 
where everything is lost. He's, as one, somebody said to me from the conference, uh, has kicked out the foundations and is prepared to live in, an, in a, a world almost of illusion. No fixed points. Anything can be right, anything can be wrong, anything can be true, anything can be false. This is pathetic. The only answer to this dilemma, and we would say with Paul the answer to all man's futility, thinking themselves to be wise, they have become fools. All men. The only answer is that God, in his mercy, not just the creator, but is the savior of sinners, and has come to us and has told us the answer. And so we have it. We have it. He has explained it to us. And so we have in this the basis of being able to identify what is true and what is false. So that is the first thing, a submission to God's Word. In this respect, it's very important, though, for us to, to say it's not a blind submission. You don't have to just sort of take it as your authority as it were, with no questions asked. The Bible invites questions. Come, says Isaiah, let us reason together. The Bible is very open to our having questions. It doesn't say we shouldn't think about these things. In fact, in my own experience, and I'm sure it's true for many of you, it's those things in the Bible which have been difficult to understand, where you've had to wrestle with it. Isn't this right? To seek clarification sometimes it's great pain and hard work that have brought the most wonderful results spiritually for us. I see some of you nodding your heads. You know what I'm talking about. There's not a blind submission. We may ask questions and, uh, and the Bible will give answers in due course, perhaps not immediately. I just want to mention in parenthesis at this point that we must be clear that when Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 about the gospel being foolish, you know the passage. You often hear this mentioned in the context of not developing a Christian mind. The unspiritual man does not receive the things of God, says 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The gospel is foolishness, he says in chapter 1. And so, some have said, you see, we shouldn't be concerned with the mind. The mind is a distraction. It's a block. All this has to be understood spiritually. Now, I just would like to say, as I say in parenthesis, I'm hurrying through, this is not Paul's intention. You know that it is not his intention because he has written to the Romans, probably from Corinth, I'm quoting from 1 Corinthians, probably from Corinth, he's written to the Romans and told them that, the, that Christianity is true, completely true. So true that even the things of nature testify to his existence. For the invisible things of God are clearly to be seen in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They should know God. So it's the wisdom of God, not just the wisdom of man that Paul is presenting, but... His point here in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is this. The Greeks, because they were humanists, they thought they could figure out all the answers for themselves in their wisdom. The Greeks love wisdom. 
And Paul is using this as a parody. He's saying, isn't this ridiculous? In their wisdom, they're quoted, their ostensible wisdom, they do not know God, and they cannot know God. But what they think to be foolishness, which is God's revelation culminating in the coming of Christ, what they take to be foolish, and they call foolish, is in fact the wisdom of God. So the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. That is his point. He, what he is opposing here is the idea that human thought can come up with all the answers. It cannot. There has to be a dependence on revelation from God to man. And that was the point that I made last night about Colossians chapter 2, where Paul speaks about philosophy, and again, it's a text which has sometimes been taken to mean that Paul is not interested in the mind. <clears throat> and so, this is the quote, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. But they fail to see, that Paul goes on to say, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, you see, humanistic thinking, rather than on Christ. I just say that to um, give you some things to think about in that respect. But the first thing is that to develop a Christian mind, we have to be subject to God's Word. We are looking at all the questions that face us in that light. What does God's Word teach us about that? The second is we have to be convinced about truth. Convinced about truth. I wish I could dwell upon this. You remember when Paul was taken before the Roman governor and he made his defense? He came to the end of his defense and, and the Roman governor, this worldly uh, gentleman, doubtless, successful in the political arena, and he says to Paul, Paul, you're mad. Let's face it, you're mad. Your great learning's turned you mad. Now, Paul's response is very interesting. It's an absolute bombshell into the world of philosophy today. It was then. It is today. He says, I'm not mad, most excellent Festus. I speak words, and the words that he chooses are very important. I speak words of truth. And the uh, translation we have is sound sense. It's really the word rationality. It's the one thing that makes sense of everything. Nothing will make sense if you are logical, if you're consistent. Nothing will make sense. And since the postmodernists have concluded that, nothing will make sense if you do not have the Christian revelation. Others may pretend to make sense of reality, but they do not. And that's part of our challenge, is to expose that. But you see there's the emphasis upon truth. It's really true. It's not make-believe. It's not the invention of our minds. It's really true. So the history is really true. But not just the history. The theology is true. What we are told about the nature of God, that God is three in one. That God had these purposes as he created man. That this is the meaning of man, to be the image of God. And so on and so on. You see, really true. Secondly, really convinced about salvation truth. <clears throat> 
It's not a mind that is simply interested in intellectual things. It is interested in intellectual things, but it has a passion behind it, and namely the passion that the whole of life is this drama, this tragedy. And here was this beautiful work of art that was created by the living God and now is spoiled and is to be redeemed. And that there is such a thing as redemption through the mercy of God. And this controls and captivates, enables, as Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. It's actually the word constrains us. It just forces us along. This should be the passion we display in relation to the world in which we're living. We should be so enthused about the very existence of truth that we have from God's word, from the reality of what God has done, that we are constrained as he was, as Paul was, to go out and make a difference in the world. And so Paul concludes that whole letter of Romans. How? Oh, the wonder. His is an attitude of wonder before the revelation of God. All that God has done, the wonder of God's love. The third is that the Christian mind, to develop a Christian mind, it must be universal in vision. Now what I mean by this is uh, something like the Renaissance ideal, but not with the humanism of the Renaissance. But that we, we take in as of interest to us, of concern to us, literally everything. Now, I don't mean by that that we can all be interested in everything. You know, like there are some people who are just fascinated by mathematics. And then there are others who are not fascinated by mathematics, but who are fascinated by art, let's say, or philosophy, or whatever. Do you see? All these different interests. And we should, as Christians, be concerned. Why? Because it's all God's world. And once again, you see the irony here is that in the 16th, 17th century, the Christians who went back to God's word became so excited about the freedoms that they had through the gospel as over against the medieval period that there was a veritable explosion of interest in nature. And so before the Industrial Revolution that all you people know so much about up here in the Northeast, There was an agricultural revolution which enabled the technological revolution to become possible and urbanization and so on. And who were the people involved in that? They were people who realized that this is God's creation. The the founding members of the Royal Society, the Science Society in London in the 17th century, were 75% either Puritans or from Puritan families. That is, people who believed the same things as, as you and I do about the Word of God. And they were so interested in God's creation, they were going out to understand it and by that means to bring glory to him and dominion to man and freedom from some of the results of sin. Now I have an illustration here, a diagram, to try to illustrate the next point, which is a very difficult one. When we say the Bible relates to the whole of reality and we are to be interested in it, Quite clearly, the first question that arises is, but does the Bible tell us about everything? It doesn't. 
So you will look in vain for anything about Chinese culture, for example, or for um, uh, engineering and, uh, and uh, science in the normally accepted sense, and, and we don't have anything in the Bible about that, or modern medicine. Well, now, is the Bible therefore irrelevant in all those areas? That's the question. And of course it isn't. But in what way is it relevant? And I have here an illustration to try to make that clear. I hope you can all see it. What I have here is the idea of a, a skylight in a big building which doesn't have any windows. No windows, right? Just a skylight up in the top. And the sun is shining through. That's the green rays of light coming down here. Now, over the whole is the Word of God. This is God's definitive statement to all men. Listen to me. Follow these ways. Continue in my words, and you will be set free. At the same time, it's a control on all of our understanding, all of our knowledge. And the Word of God overarches the whole of reality. Now, it only speaks to, to uh, parts of reality directly. It speaks to some parts of reality directly, but to others only indirectly. Only indirectly. Just as this ray of light coming into a dark room like that, a huge building, as I was in a, in a building once, that's what made me think of this. And there was this wonderful suffusion of light through the whole building, even right up to the roof, even though the light was not shining directly on the whole building. There was just a shaft of light, the direct, and then there was the suffusion of light through the whole building, indirect. And that is what the Word of God is like. So, how does it work in practice? So we first of all, to develop a Christian mind, must have a clear grasp of the fundamentals of what the Bible teaches. The structure of the Bible, if you like. Those things about which there can be no shadow of doubt. That's why I like this um, uh, thing from Harvard, where you have the open Bible. Oh, it's clear. We're rummaging around trying to find out whether God is personal or not. God is personal, not it. God is He, you see. God is personal, the living God. Likewise, we don't have to rummage around wondering what our purpose in life is. We know what our purpose in life is. Thou should love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and love thy neighbor as thyself. It's clear, you see. And likewise, we don't have to worry uh, ourselves about how we can be restored to a relationship with God. It's been made clear to us, and so on. These are the fundamentals. And as I said to some of you challenging you, I hope you will take up the challenge. To get this kind of a feel, the first thing is to do, don't go rummaging around in Christian books, good as they might be. Go to the Bible and read it from beginning to end. That will be the best theological text you've found. And there will be lots of things that you won't understand, but what will you'll come away with is a clear grasp of the big things in the Bible. I'll never forget my excitement when I first did it. And I came in the New Testament to the text, but Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Because I didn't have a Christian background. Now, I'd read in Exodus about the Passover. Of course, you know what I'm talking about. But it was so thrilling to see the New Testament interpreting 
the old. And that is what you will find over and over and over again. Now, I'm not disparaging Christian books, and there are some wonderful books. Roy Clemens has one out recently and so on, uh, which tell you the basics. Read them also. But don't overlook the Bible. Okay? So that's the first thing, is get a clear picture of those areas that God has highlighted directly. Now, what about the rest? What about education? What about art? What about science? What about all these other areas that we are involved in in life? If our view is to be panoramic, universal, what about it? Can we be as dogmatic about these things? For example, we just mentioned in passing El Greco, uh, the great uh, uh, painter of the Counter-Reformation, and Rembrandt, the great painter of the Reformation. Oh, there's a value judgment there. And uh, can you say much about the respective value of these different artists? Is the one better than the other? And in what sense is the one better than the other? They were both great in my mind. But then they're quite clearly different. Both great artists. But you go to the... I went through a, an exhibition of all, uh, many of El Greco's paintings uh, some years back, and uh, you came away with a certain impression of what he believed. And that's very different from what Rembrandt believed. Do you see? Does this matter? Now, you see, the overarching principle that a Christian must have, developing a Christian mind, as I said last night, is what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The spiritual man judges all things. And what we have to learn is on the basis of what is clear in the Word of God, those things that are quite clear to us, is to be able to assess what we are looking at, what we are hearing on the radio, the TV, etc., and being able to judge it. Judge it, not making ourselves superior, saying, oh, we're great, you know, we're intelligent. It's all on the basis of God's Word. But really judging and saying, this is what it is, and this is what it is not. Now, in that, of course, we would have questions and doubts and problems. The assessment process will take time. You may realize that you've been on the wrong track in this area. Now, I'm not talking about the fundamentals, right? I'm not talking about the fundamentals. Those are beyond dispute. We may need to have them clarified. They are beyond dispute. In this other area, we're talking about an area where we cannot be as dogmatic. But, to give some illustrations, I've mentioned the area of art. What it seems to me is involved here is that all art is an expression of people's thinking. It may not be always explicit. They may not be sitting down and saying, I am now going to paint a picture or make a sculpture to express this. This is my philosophical conviction or my religious conviction. No, no. It happens in the passion of the, of the creative uh, uh, adventure that they get going with the paint or the sculpture. I'm not an artist, but I can picture them there. And they're just excited about an idea and they produce it. Now, in the production of that, what is being expressed? Inevitably, it just flows over, just like all the things you do express yourself. It's not a different principle. The clothes you wear, the houses you live in, 
the things that you do, the priorities that you make, and they express their worldview in their art. So overall, in looking at a person's art, like El Greco's, like Rembrandt's, you can get a feel of what this person believes. Is that important or is it not? It seems to me one of the features of our contemporary culture is that we have witnessed the creation of a new music, both popular and uh, unpopular, and, um, and uh, uh, classical, as, as, the, as the phrase goes. And each of them is expressing a new worldview. Why? Because our culture has moved from the old worldview. That was Christian. That's outdated. That's useless. See, now we're going to have a new one. Man, or whatever. And you have a new expression of that. Now that <coughs> is something of importance to us. And we need to weigh it. And what do we conclude about that? How does it affect our lives practically? What do we tune into, so to speak? What do we hang on our walls as being important expressions of what we think life is about? All these things are important. Secondly, in the area of education, clearly we have things like this. We have a concept of what man is. Thinking of the child. Of the value of, of the child. The importance of a, a child not being indoctrinated, but there being freedom to learn. Of a child being given access to the truth. And yet not indoctrinated with the truth. There's a subtle difference here, very important difference. Uh, of a child being able to uh, have a situation which is conducive to their age. So they're not expected at the age of five to be able to do what they can do at the age of 15, all these things. But behind all of it, we have from the Word of God a sense of what is important for man. Because God has told us that. And so then we apply it into the area of education. And that's where, of course, there can be differences. There's no one educational system that is right. But there are some educational systems which are more right than others. And we have to be sensitive to that and aware. And perhaps we have to pioneer a new direction. And take another example, <clears throat> the whole field of science. Now, in this, of course, as I've already said, a great encouragement to science scientific endeavor was the Reformation. We're our Christian forefathers. And yet they never had the sense that science was free. That, oh yes, now we can do all these experiments and find these wonderful things out about nature, etc. And so that leaves us free and we can do anything we like and come to any conclusions we like. Not at all. And so, of course, this touches the issue of evolution. I won't go into it. We spent some time on it last night. Are the discoveries scientific discoveries? How do we gauge these? How do we judge them in the light of the Word of God, which tells us about origins? And then, to take another more dramatic example, you have something like the DNA molecule, which has been um, explained to us, the double helix by Crick and, and Watson. And that's a very great discovery, and we applaud that. But then when Crick and Watson went on as great scientists, and many scientists unfortunately do this, went on and said, ah, you see, now we found the secret of life. This is all that life is, the DNA molecule. Then you just say, I, hear what I, I understand what I'm hearing now. I'm hearing not a scientist, I'm hearing a philosopher who is representing a non-Christian worldview of reality, and I reject that. 
And so I'm trying to give examples, very simple examples, of how one is developing day by day, and it's not a process that can be quickly done. It's something which involves a great deal of hard work at, at some points. Certainly it involves a listening ear. When you get next to somebody like I was uh, earlier today who knows something about a particular field, listen. Be excited. Be interested. This is interesting. That's how you learn. And that's why we should ask a question, how, how do we talk together? What do we discuss? Do we discuss? Is it of any importance to us? So that's so much for the third. And coming now to the final, there are so many things I could say in each of these categories. You realize I'm rushing by. Let me just say before I, 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 I uh, leave this, that, that, uh, that point, we must remember that this is something where <clears throat> we have to uh, try to be, be patient with each other and... Uh, and uh, Forbearing, not, not judging each other too harshly because we think that people are wrong. In this, in this area of developing a Christian mind, where we have differences of opinion about those things which the Bible does not deal with in terms of the fundamentals. But, having said that, quite clearly to be discussing an issue like development and economics and politics is an area of far more consequence immediately immediately, I don't mean ultimately, but immediately to uh, society, to ordinary people, than a, an issue like uh, art and El Greco and Rembrandt, etc. And where people have ideas which are, detrim which are against the Word of God, representing ideas which are not uh, uh, in keeping with the Word of God in these areas, they can have disastrous consequences, as we have seen in Eastern Europe and so on. So we must be very aware that although the Bible doesn't say dogmatically this is the political system that you are to, to follow, and hence we cannot be dogmatic with the authority that we would have in issues like does the Bible teach that God is personal, is salvation by faith only, and so on, yet nevertheless these are very important issues for us. And so we need to think carefully, think carefully about them. So much for universal envision. And finally, the Christian mind, the development of a Christian mind, we have to confront the world. And here I would just close with that verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Bringing every thought captive to obey Christ. I believe if we were developing a Christian mind, and not just evangelizing in the traditional sense, because it seems to me the traditional sense of evangelism has been you just tell the people the ABC. And I'm not disparaging that as if that isn't sufficient by itself. It is the power of God unto salvation. But if you look in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, you do not find Paul simply doing that. He does much more as he describes it. He goes around and he reasons with people. He challenges them. He says to the most intelligent people in the in the Greco-Roman world there in Athens, he says, uh, th this, is this is remarkably foolish, this, what you're doing. Right in the capital, sort of the university capital of the world at that time, Athens. Now, I believe if we were to confront in this way, we would see some sparks fly. 
we would see something happen in this society. And we have to learn to do this. It's a thing of great co uh, involving courage. It's not easily done. Those who, who do this in certain fields face the possibility of losing their jobs and so on. Now, we mustn't do it in a confrontational spirit. Peter warns us against that. He says, do it with gentleness. It must be done with great sensitivity, always in the context of a really human relationship. I don't mean confrontational, hey, you, I'm going to slam you one. Not that sort of a thing. But very definitely showing, quite gently, but very, very definitely showing these things are not true. And this is true. A confrontation like that, bringing every thought captive to a big Christ. Now, we received quite recently a most wonderful thing uh, from a, an Indian friend of ours who studied at Libri many, many years ago about uh, the famous uh, missionary, the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, William Carey, whom you've heard about, who went out to India. The British, incidentally, the imperialists, uh, the, the uh, uh, colonial powers didn't let him into India. He had to start off in Serampore uh, originally because uh, they didn't want missionaries coming in you know, and converting the natives and so on. Now, Vishal put together this assessment of what William Carey actually did. He went as a missionary. He went as an evangelist. But he went with a Christian mind. And listen to the things that this man achieved. It's unbelievable. He went, and of course then he was uh, preaching the gospel, uh, founding churches and so on. But he was a botanist who discovered Caria herbacea in the jungles of the Himalayan foothills. It was one of the three varieties of eucalyptus found only in India and named after William Carey. He brought the English daisy to India and introduced the Linnean system of gardening. He also published the first books on science and natural history in India, such as Flora Indica, because he believed the biblical view, all thy works praise thee, O Lord. Carey believed that nature was declared good by its creator. It was not maya, which means illusion in Hindu philosophy, therefore to be shunned, but a subject worthy of human study. I must hurry. He encouraged Indian blacksmiths to make indigenous copies of this engine. He then introduced a concept of a savings bank in India to try to offset the terrible misuse of, uh, of credit, of, uh, of usury. He then started a hospital for lepers who up till then were buried or burnt alive in India because of the belief that a violent end would purify the body and ensure transmigration into a healthy new existence, while natural death by disease would result in four successive births and a fifth as a leper. Carey believed that Jesus' love touched the lepers and therefore they should be cared for. Then he won, he was the father of the printing technology in India. This is the beginning of the 19th century. The end of the 19th century. He started the first newspaper ever printed in an Oriental language. Why? Because he believed that above, quote, above all forms of truth and faiths, above all forms, he's in India, Marky. Islam and Hinduism, both there, that above all forms of truth and faiths, Christianity seeks free discussion. 
His English language journal, Friend of India, was the most influential force that gave birth to the social reform movement in India in the first half of the 19th century. He was the founder of the Agri-Horticultural Society in the 1820s, 38 years before the Royal Agricultural Society was established in England. He published the great Indian religious classics like the Ramayana and the Samkhya, and he transformed Bengali, which was considered fit only for demons and women, in quotes, into the highest literary language of India. He wrote gospel ballads in Bengali to bring Hindu love of musical recitations to the service of his Lord, and he wrote the first Sanskrit dictionary for the scholars. Uh, I haven't got, I mean, I've got another whole page here. You see what we're on about. I mean, I wanted to end with that to try to give you all a feel of what it is to develop a Christian mind. It is not in opposition to um, uh, simple evangelism. It's not in opposition to a spiritual experience, walking with God. But it includes something which is far wider, it's far more biblical. It includes the whole of life. It is ultimately the Lordship of Christ over the whole of life. Now, I'll leave it there. We have very little time, but we do have some time before we close this session and go on to our last session of, um, of um, uh, workshops. Does anyone have any question? Yes. Um, you've spoken a couple of times about reading the Bible through from beginning to end, but yes. I've been quite struck that virtually all of your biblical material has come from the epistles, Yes. I have a prejudice that if you want to apply the Bible to the whole of life, the place you go first is, well, perhaps not first, but the place you've got to go to is the Old Testament. Would Indeed. you like to respond? Yes, I would agree, I would agree that that is, is foundational. Um, and, um, and yet, in my own case, uh, it's simply a lack of time. I mean, I would love to trace back all of these things, like, for example, the subject of beauty, which I touched on. And uh, some people have said that there isn't any reference in the New Testament to beauty. Uh, I mean, not beauty, to artistic creativity, you know, to becoming an artist, in other words. And uh, the most you can come up with is Philippians uh, 4, whatever things are true and lovely and of good report, think on those things. Well, it seems to me, quite apart from the idea that I mentioned last night of man being made in the image of God and all that that includes, you have in the Old Testament this wonderful demonstration of how important God takes beauty, I mean the artistic uh, creativity of man, and, and that is the creation of the temple. The, the uh, tabernacle first and then the temple is a, is a work of, of, of art. Beautiful thing. And so the Old Testament is very instructive. Another area is the whole thing of law, which we some of us are thinking a lot about now, and that is uh, we can look back to the Old Testament law for an indication of what God considered important for his people. And by that means, not applying it directly as if everything that was there we have to have in our society, just as it was there, because it was given for the people of Israel. It wasn't given for Englishmen or Americans or Canadians and so on. It was given for the people of Israel. But it, because it is God's word to his people, it has relevance to us in the present. And so we can look back to the Old Testament in that way. I totally agree with you. I'm just mentioning these things to show you that I really do agree with you. But having said that, then there's no conflict with the message which we have, set, have uh, 
I mean, the uh, emphasis we have placed upon the epistles. The epistles actually, again, if you're a young Christian, I think to get a good theology, if you don't have the time, or you can do it in addition to what I suggest, i.e. reading the whole Bible, if you take the epistles, they are the only bit in the New Testament. Now, I'm not presenting a um, dispensationalist point of view here. Please don't misunderstand me. But if you take the epistles, they were directed to people like us in their culture who had come out of various kinds of paganism and so on. And just read the epistles. Uh, they're short. They won't take you very long. Now read them again. And then read them again. We read them about five times. And by the end of the fifth time, I guarantee you'll have a fairly good reformational theology in your mind. <laughs> yes, somebody had the hand up. Yes. Uh, I'd just like to say in main to the uh, suggestion of reading the Bible from beginning to end, from a sheer practical point of view, uh, on the basis that Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will tell you all things that I have told you. He will bring to mind mm. all things that I have told you. Well, uh, if one doesn't know what Jesus has said, uh, how can the Holy Spirit bring to mind such things? Yes. Um, therefore, if we say that uh, the Bible is inspired from beginning to end, then obviously that uh, um, ties in with the very saying of Jesus in that respect. Uh, I would therefore uh, go a bit further and make a plea for reading the King James Version mm. from beginning to end on the sheer basis that it is poetry. It has been written harmoniously. Okay. And if you, uh, okay. if you learn from that harmoniously, it comes to mind immediately. And that, of course, is the lesson of the microchip, that once something is committed to mind, not necessarily to remembering, but committed to mind, it will uh, be summed up immediately. Yes. Now, I'm a great admirer of the King James Version. Yes, anything else? Yes. Yes. I wonder, I mean, is the, the idea of this conference kind of based on the fact that we have the mind of yes. Christ, we haven't developed it? Yes. You know what I mean? So, we are, right. I mean, it's saying here we have, as Christians, the mind of Christ. Are, are we actually saying that we need to develop what we have? Um, yes. Uh, he's, he said, he's used a very interesting illustration, Paul, there in Corinthians. And he said, no one knows the sort of internal operations, you know, what's going inside, on inside a person's head. We don't. I don't know exactly what you're thinking right now, you see. And, and yet he says, but the Spirit does. Your Spirit knows. That's secret to me. And he says, and it's like that with God. But what was like that, hidden in God, so to speak, has now been made clear. That's what Jesus did. And so when you've believed in Christ, and you've not believed him in sort of just in a simple sense, but understanding who he is and why he came, the fulfillment of the prophecies, etc., etc., he is to you, this is the phrase he uses, the wisdom of God, your righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So when he says, you have the mind of Christ, we have the mind of Christ, that's what he's referring to. We have this wonderful privilege that we have been given God's revelation. And that should give us tremendous confidence in the light of all the aberrations in thought that we're going to run into in our lives, where people don't have a clear picture. Or if they think they have got a clear picture, you know, like say in other faiths, but we know are not true, uh, we ought to be able to expose to them what is not true in their position. Yeah, so that's what he's getting at when he says that. We have a... Yes, sir. Just wondering about the 
being involved in all things. Yes. Mm. Um, I remember reading an, a, a report of an experiment where they analyzed the reaction of students on pornography and they exposed a sort of sec sec section of students to mm -hmm. light pornography but over a frequent period. Right. And they questioned them on their attitude to rape and they questioned a similar group who hadn't been exposed on attitude to rape. Yes. Now the similar group said that they would impose seven to eight years imprisonment on rape but the exposed group who were basically the same sort of people half that and said three to four which showed a certain tolerance mm. after heavy exposure to certain mm -hmm. things all the time quite unwittingly i just mm -hmm. wondered what your comment might be on that sort of problem no no right and and this this would apply to everything you know like what we read <coughs> in terms of books not just um not just uh uh, what would be described as pornographic books, but, but everything. And we have to be reading some of the most devastating things we read are, are not those, but the things that, that are dealing with philosophy and which then turn a whole person not only wrong morally, I'm not saying that that's right, but, but in terms of their whole thinking, turn them into a wrong direction. And so th that's the whole purpose of developing a Christian mind so one be able to assess these things. And, and then... There are clear areas where I think uh, it's a no-go in the sense that one shouldn't be involved in some things because they are so immoral, so wrong. One should know that already. Um, and um, I'm just trying to think of another situation which would be similar to that. Um, I have an illustration that hasn't come to my mind, though. Yes. Anything else? Yes, Mark. Just ask you to say a little more. I mean, you talked about the conflict which one um, necessarily finds oneself in when you follow through um, a biblical worldview into important issues, be it teaching or social right. services. Right. And you also brought up the biblical caution about the way in which that is presented and referred to um, Peter's instructions about gentleness. Right. It all actually feels very, very messy out there where yes. people actually have deep commitments to other views. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a great, um, speaking personally here, a great sense of tension mm. between, on the one hand, fulfilling the biblical picture of being the person of a certain kind of gentleness, kind of humility, and on the other hand, being identified as a person who is a troublemaker, rocking yes. the boat, and causing yes. a great deal of heat and friction mm -hmm. where there would not be a right. comment right. on that kind of part of the struggle. Yeah, I think that's part of the struggle. Uh, but didn't Paul express that very well um, himself? You know, when he, when he said, this is the opinion that people have of us, uh, and... Uh, let's see if I can find it quickly. And we can't avoid that. Um, that sort of uh, misrepresentation and the struggle that, that is involved in it. Um, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. I mean, that is the tension. Um, I think, personally, this is perhaps the greatest uh, expression of bearing the cross. 
if you ask what was the cross to Jesus, I mean, apart from just the theological meaning of it, you know, that Jesus was dying for our sins. And this was essential. But just on the human element, uh, aspect, for him, here he had come, like John says, being the light, to bring light to the darkness. Coming to his own people, who belonged to him, and his own people wouldn't have him. And there's this rejection of even the one who has come as the Savior. And this is a terrible problem. The cross is his willingness to go to the end of that road, of the rejection. And it's a very painful road. Now, sometimes we see success, in quotes, where people seeing that then believe. They, they are drawn to the light. But then other times we don't. And if we had been living in the Soviet Union until very recently, if any of us had been saying what I've been saying this afternoon, then you know where we would have been. Locked up. And so we have to treat this with reality. And so a Christian cannot expect to avoid, to be freed from, uh, rescued from, that sort of tension necessarily. I think we've gone through all the... Just one more and then we, we'll go to our workshops. I know it's there under science. You mentioned the Reformation. Yes. And I believe you stated, and I'm just asking for clarification, uh, yeah. I believe you stated that they didn't view things as free. Uh, they didn't... I thought you said they did not view things as free. Free, yes, right, right. Free in the sense that um, as if science was, was uh, a subject that because it was science, it was free from any controls of a philosophy or of a worldview that overarched it. Now, you see, that is one of the great dilemmas facing us today. Scientists can come up with all kinds of things uh, that they can do, but ought they to do them? And, and the, our forefathers, at, uh, admittedly, it was only at the beginning of the development of science, so we hadn't run into some of the problems like pollution that we run into now. But at no point along the line did they ever think that science, any more than drama or history or writing or whatever, was free from the controls of God's Word. That's all I meant. You see what I mean by the controls of God's Word? Is that, um, of course, science is supposed only to be telling you the facts and coming up with facts and more facts and so on. But it doesn't just do that. It comes up with theories also. That's more what I was getting at. And um, one of the people who was most concerned about that was Boyle, in fact, um, after whom Boyle's law is named, who was one of the founding fathers of the Royal Society. And he actually wrote a book called, I have, I have a copy of it if you're interested, of the uh, dedication that he made. It's called The Christian Virtuoso. It's a lovely title, isn't it? You usually associate that with playing music. Virtuosa, the Christian virtuoso. But what he meant was that a scientist is seeking, through his virtuosity, with, through his, his uh, abilities, through his skills, to glorify God. But the reason why he wrote the book was that already there were scientists who were wanting to take it in a humanist direction, which they later succeeded in doing. So he was trying to show that the scientist is a Christian virtuoso. He is doing this under God. That's what I was getting at. Okay. Well, now we go to our workshops. Come on.
you have any questions about Labrie, uh, I mentioned a bit about it at the beginning, but I'm aware that some of you maybe weren't here for that. Uh, or anything that we have been saying over this, this weekend that you haven't had a chance to ask about, then please fire away now. Okay, yes. I'm aware of the great tension with a lot of Christians around me that we are in professions or in responsible business jobs and working our way up the hierarchies and what have you. But it seems to me that our careers often place so much pressure on us, we don't develop as Christians. So we get to the places where we can be really useful, but then we don't do what we ought to do. And that seems to me to be a common problem in the church in Britain. Now, how do we overcome that, uh, given the demands that are, we face in the careers? Do you want us to stand near this? <laughs> Just one thing that I uh, would like to respond to that is that I think that very often what happens is that the people who get nearer the top of their careers are then grossly used and overused by their churches so that they aren't able to develop in their professional jobs in a way that they can be really effective as Christians. And I think that the churches need to recognize that those people who are talented, who do have gifts, who have got positions of leadership and responsibility in their professions, should be given space and time uh, not to be drained by their local church, which wants to use them. I recognize that's a tension, but will have the opportunity to really be effective in their profession. I mean, it's going to be a tension. Uh, I recognize that. Um, but I think that's one thing that can help, is that the local church must make sure that its gifted people aren't overburdened. I'm, I'm not sure if this touches it, but I think the, the problem, the problem of, of, um, of helping them within their sphere of work does lie some, somehow in this thing that we've been talking about uh, to the, the last uh, day, and namely helping them to develop a mind uh, themselves, so that they, not that they, they don't need support from outside, but that they can be creative within their own situation. So in addition to what Ian was saying about not milking them for their, what they can give to the church, not that they shouldn't participate in the church, but, but realizing that they've got enough work out there to do and, and to encourage them, it seems to me they have to be given materials that will help them to do that. Now, what are they? You know, that's where it's, 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 a, it's a question. And I think tapes, or, you know, books, uh, we need to help them, we need to feed them with these things uh, so that they can be more creative and effective in their work. <clears throat> Somebody said, said to me that we, we spend uh, an awful lot of time and money on our secular education, but we spend very little, actually, on developing, as Ronald was saying, a Christian mind. Um, and I think sometimes we have to think, well, should we take, uh, if possible, somewhere between jobs, three months out, to go and study and think somewhere, to read, uh, or take even a year out, so that we can be more effective in the future. Now, that, that obviously means how do you afford that, but maybe you should do part-time work and take some time to, to study. And also to meet with other people who have the same concern. I don't think I would have survived in psychiatry um, if I, there hadn't been other people who were concerned about t t about the same issues, you know, other Christians who were starting in psychiatry in a 
consultant who was willing to spend time with us just to get together for an evening once a month and thrash through some of the things we were concerned about. How do you think Christianly about what's going on in the wards of this hospital and the sort of things we're doing here? Yeah. Uh, two questions. So one's to, the first one's to do with the issue of uh, uh, security and a lot of these things to do with truth. You understand uh, a need for us to sort of grow in a grasp of, of you know, Christian truth. But well, that's something I find for myself and a lot of uh, my contempor- contemporaries, even with their, say, even the shallow understanding of the truth, the bigger issue for them is straightforward insecurity and rejection um, is uh, very high on the agenda in terms of the way they relate to people. Would you have anything to say on that? Or is it just a case of being more courageous and trusting in God more? Are you, are you saying that they, they um, feel that they're not able, I mean, that they're bad at personal relationships, so they can't talk to other people? Or are you saying they feel insecure in their ideas as a Christian? What sort of insecurity? I think they feel if they stand up for the truth, they'll get, you know, they'll suffer rejection in terms of, you know, it's not. So it's not so much they're, they're personally insecure as people and find all relationships difficult. It's more that they, it's because of the truth, they're afraid of the consequences. Well, I think I find a lot of people are actually insecure in relationships. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, um, dealing with that. Yeah. And I think Ronald addressed the whole issue of how we talk to people in terms of the courage that we need, but also the gentleness. So you can actually create problems for yourself by being too abrasive in the way you talk about things. Um, but, and also to recognize that sometimes you will be. People won't like what you say, and they will turn away from it. And there is a real cost to doing it. I f- I, just talking about my own experience, in, it was interesting in psychiatry, I felt that um, initially, when I was learning, I didn't say a whole lot about my Christian perspective, because I felt I was trying to wrestle with the whole thing. But as I went up the ladder and the ranks uh, within psychiatry, and uh, got to know these people I was working with, there was a, a sort of more of an openness to talk about our different views. And uh, there was a, a respect, in a sense, that this guy, um, he had a, a particularly strong affiliation for Buddhism. And a lot of his views came out of that. And we would be able to talk openly about our different world views that informed what we were doing. Um, so I think... He, at different stages in your career, you're in, sometimes, say, as a doctor, you're in a stronger position when you're uh, not just a, a, a junior house officer. It's very hard to say things then to the consultant you're working for. Um, so, but you're stronger when you're working sort of from the top. So it varies a lot in each discipline, I think. I'm sure that you want to add anything to it. What can I ask you? What do you think we should do in Newcastle to take things further? Yeah, about these things. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> Do you any idea? Yet? Um, no, I don't think uh, I, I do. I just wanted to make a, a point in relation to what you said. I think that in some senses that um, Christians can be really confident uh, in the truth and confident that uh, Christian truth can be defended. 
and can be, you know, there's, there's every reason for intellectual confidence, not for intellectual arrogance in any sense, but for real intellectual confidence. And that's one of the great things that I found when I went to Debris, is that I'd sort of uh, been at Cambridge as a, as, a, as a Christian, and sort of, you know, you, uh, you're embarrassed about being a Christian, basically. You know, a, a, a Christian was some sort of member of the God Squad and some sort of, you know, intellectual freak, some sort of throwback. And that's why I ceased being a Christian. <laughs> uh, and then... Uh, when I was restored to being a Christian, one of the things I found so wonderful about going to Debris was that it was because that one could have a certain intellectual confidence um, and that one could then really throw back the questions that were being put to one by one's non-Christian friends and, pu- you know, and really push them on their position. Uh, not, in, not in an arrogant way, not in a, not in a nasty way, but you know, really just um, asking for an intellectual integrity from them. And I think one really needs to do that. Okay. Uh, uh, I suppose that was going on to my second question, which was uh, <coughs> we're very stimulated that you can have a great deal of uh, confidence in the Christian truth. Uh, would you have any advice to, to uh, I mean, in a sense, I feel a bit overawed as I'm not quite sure where to start. I think you know, a lot of us feel that way. What advice you might give us in the midst of what we're doing already that we could do good practical things to, mm. as it were, develop? Um, our Christian minds, I suppose. What, what particular area are you, are you interested in? Do you have well, I work with students in full-time Christian work myself, but uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. So that could cover a lot of areas. <laughs> <laughs> it would take us, I think, maybe a few weeks to answer your question. <laughs> yes. Maybe you should come and visit us. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, I did. I mean, you know, this is we're going back to uh, what was said earlier. This is where we're in a bit of a, a bind here because we don't want to sound like we're just promoting debris. You understand? And, and yet, <laughs> and yet, at the same time, the places where this is happening are few and far between. You know, there are some churches where you can get this kind of dialogue, but there are not many. And hence, we'd be anxious for you to know that you'd be welcome any time, short or long. I took a month when I was uh, at Cambridge, and it, it, it just changed my whole perspective on things. This is way back in 1960. And um, I felt I'd learnt enough in that, more in that month than I'd learnt in all my three years at the university, just in the way of integrating stuff. It wasn't that one didn't have lots of facts, but it was being able to integrate it and get this sense of confidence, like, like Ian was saying. Now, it's not only in Labrie that this can happen. We're not trying to say that. But one thing I would suggest is there are several things that people have done that we know about who've gone on. One would be to get tapes. Listen to them yourself. We have a lending library. You can get a group of you together, like the four of you, and then listen to a tape together and discuss it. Stop it. We actually do this uh, at times when we've got crowds, and we can't see them all individually, but we'll have a discussion around a tape. tape. We haven't done it at Gretham for a long time, but in Swiss library we used to do it and stop the tape and say, anyone got any questions? And then go on with the subject. You know. But just encouraging each other to think together. And then another thing is there are, there's this book uh, that is sort of foundational on the, on the theological, philosophical side that's just come out, which we're very excited about by IVP, this, the trilogy of Schaeffer. But the thing about that is it's not exhaustive, but it does give you the basic tools with which to think, I think. And so that's, that's another thing you can do. Um, what else? 
going on from there. No, they've got one already, really. It's called the Christian Institute. Keep tuned to the Christian Institute. Christians within the professions around in Newcastle actually have already moved forward a little bit in the area and might be willing to offer help. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't hand in the names at the end of the meeting, we'll take them on up. <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, one thing which has occurred to us uh, in the Christian Institute is that uh, one of the roles that we might have would be to provide a kind of umbrella organisation by which small groups of people could meet together perhaps in their own homes, to, to study and to mm -hmm. listen to tapes. And uh, maybe people are interested in art or literature or whatever, mm -hmm. or education, that we could do that. And perhaps, perhaps be a kind of labrie in exile in the north. Uh, but, but I think we would want a continuing relationship with labrie. Mm -hmm. I believe that Great. your work is very important. Can I just say a couple of other things? Just, just briefly, one thing is you've got to start somewhere. Yeah, sure. Don't be worried that it's such a vast field. Um, but just get started and start to get excited you know, about these things. And, and the other thing is don't ever forget that, that God has used throughout history small beginnings. Yeah. And, and if you ask what was the force behind the Enlightenment, you probably find it was just a handful of people. And likewise in the Impressionists in, in the 19th century, uh, the Impressionist artists who brought about a revolution in art. Again, it was a handful of people. And so who knows what could come out of Newcastle? Right. Yeah. Um, I'd just like to say that uh, there is an opportunity for this new shape of tapes because oh, I have yes. a, quite a, a big uh, library of them. And we have already got a group of people coming around, and they've been through the Roman series, and now going through the Christian lifestyle series. Great. So it's, it's available for people who they are interested. The, uh, the, the tapes on a Thursday night. And uh, I have put a couple of uh, uh, little computer printouts on the table where the Christian Institute uh, uh, literature is just a little piece of, piece of paper saying, giving the name, giving the address of where I live, and at the time, 7 o'clock, and wants to come. If everyone comes, we won't have to take it, because it's not a very big place. <laughs> but you do have some of the tapes. Pardon? You have some of the tapes. Yes, uh, Jerem uh, told me that if I wanted the tapes, we were in Manchester. Where was it, Manchester? Right. But they couldn't have, he didn't want to, because they were all copies, didn't want to afford to take them back. Mm -hmm. I wanted them, uh, I could take them home myself. I've got them here. Okay. They're always open opportunity here. Good friend. So there's a little beginning here. Yeah. Any others? Yes, now. I'm just curious, <coughs> uh, in speaking first very generally, what you're finding right now in your work, and speaking more precisely, um, I can recall back in the early 70s uh, reading about Dr. Schaefer and just various of his books and all, and I got the feeling that, uh, I don't think I ever read the book Labrie. There is a book by that name. Uh, I don't think I ever read that one, but I got the feeling that there were a lot of students who uh, generally speaking were on the intellectual side and all, and they were really wrestling with issues, and they'd come there. And, uh, 
and the Alps and disgust and rap and it was just, you know, it sounded so great. And I'm um, all for it. And of course, we're in the 80s now. We're, excuse me, we're in the 90s now. <laughs> uh, in terms of, I mean, there's a lot of flux in terms of uh, what students are like and what youth is like and all that. And uh, what are some of the similarities and differences you find between the current period, starting in the 90s, and what your experience back then? Well, Randall was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Maybe I, you should answer this one. I, I think this is where, in, in re- I'll, I'll stand up. In relation to, to Labrie's history, there has been this impression that only intellectuals have ever gone. That's completely wrong. It's always just been ordinary people of various kinds. You know, um, and some older, the majority younger, university students, etc., but of all sorts. Um, and so <clears throat> our experience now, you asked us about Labrie, is pretty much that there has been a con- continuity like that. So you get some people, like George came by the other day. Uh, he had come over from the States. I'm just giving you an example. He came to tea um, Thursday. And um, he, he was up here doing a, quote, mission from his university group in Scotland. And he was very confused. The more he was here, the more he was confused. He hadn't got basic things sorted out. He came to Labrie, and I don't know how long he stayed, maybe two months, three months, as a student. And it just gave him that base, that foundation. He then went on, trained for the Anglican ministry. He's now uh, in the Church of England ministry. Now, someone like George, you see, has got a philosophical background. That was what he studied. So that's the sorts of things that he's interested in. And then somebody else would be at the other end of the spectrum, whatever the spectrum is supposed to be. You know. and, and just tremendous variety. I would have thought, though, that the differences in the culture are differences which we are experiencing, just as all of you are. Namely, less and less interest in ideas, in pursuing the logic of, of, a, of a presupposition, to use these phrases, less of that than there was, uh, say, a generation or two back, uh, some can remember a time when there was a tremendous ferment of ideas. Well, that's not a change that's true only of us. It's true of the culture at large. Now, whether it's changing, whether we're at a break point or not, I don't know. I wish we were. I hope we are. I hear reports that perhaps we are now and that younger people are beginning to ask the big questions again. And then doubtless we'll pick that change up as, as time goes on. But um, there is a huge vacuum out there, an enormous vacuum. And we need an authoritative statement into that uh, along the lines of what Judge Schaefer wrote. 